Hi, I'm Jeff Scoop with my co-host Acacia Dietz here with Beyond Barriers podcast. And today's special guest is Tamara Meyer. Tamara is the child of German Jewish Holocaust survivors. And she's been honoring her family's legacy by teaching and using the lessons of the Holocaust to promote dialogue and reconciliation and do her part to repair the world. Tamara, it's an honor to have you here today. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's such an honor to be part of Beyond Barriers. I've been listening to your podcast and I'm so impressed with what you and Acacia are doing. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I know uh, for our listeners, well, I know you, you took a really interesting and important trip uh, recently and you're back and, and uh, you haven't really talked about it a lot. So it's an incredible honor that are you willing to talk with us about it today? But could you, uh, could you talk, uh, talk a little bit about wh what you did and, and uh, the reasons for that and a little bit of the story behind that? Yeah, sure. So I went to Germany just last month, less than a month ago, to honor my family in the city that my mother's family is from. Both of my parents are, are from Germany. But um, this trip had to do with going back to Gerlitz, where my mother... Um, her family, my great, my grandparents, um, actually one of my grandparents was born there and quite a few other relatives. And I've been back before quite a few times, but I was going back for a very special reason this time. I was, I was returning this time with about 20 descendants of the former Jewish community of that city. The Jewish community at one time uh, was about 900 people, Jewish community in Gerlitz. And in the 30s, that began to dwindle as um, it became more and more dangerous for Jews to live there. And uh, my family fled to Berlin, actually in 1936. The last remaining Jews in Gerlitz were rounded up in 1942 and murdered. And there haven't been any Jews living in this city until a year and a half ago, when my friends, um, uh, Lauren and Mark moved there. He is Jewish. Uh, he's a physician from Israel. And Lauren was one of the organizers uh, of, this, of these events we had. So it was a very, it was, um, I was going back in a very different way than I had before. Um, I believe, I, I can say with about 99% certainty that this was the first time the city has had this many Jews um, since 1942. So that was quite remarkable as well. Um, there were a lot of firsts for Saxony. This city is now in Saxony. That's the state. Mm. When my mother lived there, it was called Silesia. And the, um, the synagogue in Saxony, I'm sorry, the synagogue in Gerlitz is the only to survive what we here in the United States call Kristallnacht in uh, Germany and Europe, they call it the pogroms of November 8th, the 9th, 1938. And this synagogue was just reopened. So we were coming back to the synagogue that our, our relatives were, our relatives had worshiped. Um, my great grandparents were on the board of this synagogue. My great grandmother uh, headed a philanthropic organization with the great-grandmother of one of the under, other descendants who came. Uh, we just discovered this actually rather recently. So there, 
um, this was a very unusual gathering for us and for that, for the city. Wow. That's an incredible history. And uh, I, I can't even imagine, you know, having that, that background and, and uh, going, going there. Uh, how did that, <clears throat> how did you feel? Like, uh, if you don't mind us asking, like, how, how did, that's, that's a lot to comprehend. So it's a lot. <laughs> it was a lot. I, I had a lot of anxiety uh, before going. I think I always do before going to this city. I, I feel such a strong connection to it. Uh, for whatever reason, I seem to have a stronger connection to the city, to uh, the building that my great-grandfather built and that my grandfather um, had as a department store than the rest of my family. So I've been there quite a few times. But um, this time was both in a certain sense easier because I knew I'd be going with others. And I actually personally had an unusual situation in that I had nine friends say they wanted to come with me from all over the world. So I had uh, friends from England, Germany, and the United States all coming and, um, and joining me there along with the descendants. So it made me feel very um, bolstered. But on the other hand, I knew that I had some missions uh, to accomplish that were going to be difficult. And uh, it was hard. There was, there was a lot. And I was there for about 10 days with a very, very, very full schedule of events and um, lectures and so forth. So it was, uh, it was a lot to manage. I can imagine. Uh, you know, um, you had mentioned uh, participating in these dialogue groups and, and uh, you know, some of the work we do at Beyond Barriers, a lot of it has to do with relational dialogue and, yep. and um, putting together a lot of times victims with, uh, or I should say survivors with people that were victimizers and things like that. And, and there's an element of that in this. I know you and I have talked about it, but I, I, yeah. I think it's going to be interesting for the, the listeners to hear about that because that's it's something that uh, connects with what we do. And it, it's it's just so incredibly powerful, I think. And I, I would really like to hear a little more about uh, the dialogue group and, and what, what you are doing with that. I think that would be really interesting for the listeners. I'd love to talk about that. And I, I want to say that the conversations we've had about this in the past have been so meaningful to me. Truly, I had one of my, I would say my closest friend uh, or one of my closest friends in Germany came to Gerlitz with me. Her name is Dr. Martina Emma. She's a psychologist and she's one of the founders of an organization called Eins by Eins or One by One in English. And this organization brings together descendants of the Holocaust from the uh, perpetrator and the victim side We've had so much trouble with the nomenclature. Uh, we've called it the Nazi side and the Holocaust survivor side. Nobody's quite comfortable with any of the wording, but um, that's what we've been doing. Um, I attended my first dialogue in Berlin in 1998. And that's when I met Martina. And she has actually come to Gerlitz with me more times than anyone else, <laughs> even my family members. And having her there with me was just an amazing um, and remarkable, I won't say exactly a closed circle, but something akin to that. Um, uh, Martina is the granddaughter of a, a high-placed Nazi. 
um, as you mentioned, I'm the child of two German Jewish Holocaust survivors. Um, she's all, she's from Berlin. My family lived in Berlin. Um, we've discovered that we have so much in common, even though we come from two very different narratives. And I think that the the this 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 journey to girl it's also touched on some of what we've done in our dialogue groups, which is to, to tell our stories. One of the things we do in our groups is to have each member tell their story with regard to their connection to the Shoah, the Holocaust in, in Europe is called the Shoah. And one of the goals that we have is to dig deep and to really get true stories. And, and tell the stories rather than the myths, because so many of us have myths around these um, stories, these narratives, and they go in many different directions. Um, so I think I, what I mean by that is I think there's um, some, say, some shame sometimes in telling the true story. I think there is um, a sense for some people that their families didn't go through that much and they don't really uh, consider themselves survivors or, or victims. Um, and, and on the other side, there are a lot of people who feel as though their families were just bystanders. You know, why should we be in any way responsible for what happened? So these are conversations that we've been having now for, for you know, a good 20 some years. And in fact, while we were in Gurlitz, Martina looked at me and said, Tamara, it's time for us to have a dialogue group here in Gurlitz. And I think we will try to do that. Um, it was important to me also to be in Gurlitz, kind of continuing in the same vein, because the city used to be part of the Eastern Bloc. And there hasn't been that much acknowledgement of the Holocaust in the East, in East Germany, for example. Um, for that reason also, I, I, found, I felt that it was very important for me and other descendants to go and tell our stories, which we did. Each of us took one of the events we had involved um, um, uh, telling the stories of our families with photographs and so forth, forth in a very public setting in the synagogue. Everyone was invited to that townspeople, et cetera. So um, I think this was an important aspect of, you know, this trip also. Um, and I, I, I just, something just occurred to me that I, I found kind of interesting is that while I was in Gurlitz at a number of different events, uh, various townspeople would come up to me and hang me, hand me hangers. I have one here um, that were from my, great-grandfather and grandfather's department store, one of the first in Germany. And they said that they it had just been in their family for generations and they just never wanted to get rid of them. And here, would I like these hangers? So I came away with about 10, wow. <laughs> 10 hangers, yes. So um, there was a, I really felt a connection in a way that I hadn't before with the, the people in this city. It was, it's I was really incredible that. that they would have. So, did they recognize you from the the speaking at the synagogue, or how did they know how did they know who you were? Well, there was a lot of um, 
they either recognize, recognized me or they had come to events and so they knew who I was. And there had been a lot of publicity in the, in the media before we were there. And then while we were there, this was on television and newspapers a lot. I think it was throughout Germany, definitely in that part of Germany. So I guess they knew what I looked like. <laughs> That's pretty incredible, so, especially having that, you know, finding those, uh, for lack of a better word, like artifacts almost from your family history. That's really fascinating. It, it yeah, I is. I was going to say, like, how long ago was it that your grandfather's store was in that town? And they so, had those since then. That's amazing. So that's such a great question, Acacia. And it's an interesting one because um, the store is still there. It's a building that my great grandfather built. Um, it's an enormous, it's one of the largest, it's probably the first department store in Germany. I haven't, I'm not certain of that, but it's certainly one of the first. It was built in the 1850s and it's about 25,000 square feet. Um, it takes up most, you know, a good part of the city block. And after my great grandfather passed away, my grandfather um, became heir to this, this, this building and also to the department store. Um, lots of Gerlitzers, lots of people worked for him. Um, I had a few people tell me that their grandfathers had worked for my grandfather. Wow. Really, really touching. Um, this, by the way, this building has a foundation that dates back to the 12th, 13th century to the 1200s. So that's something that's always so unusual, I think, for Americans. This this country, you know, compared right. to Europe, of course, is so new, mm. uh, at least for Europeans. Um, this this so this this building still exists, and it was taken from my family. Uh, there was a point where Jews could no longer own property or businesses. It was from one day to the next to the next taken in a forced sale. So, you know, my grandfather was given less than quote unquote pennies on the dollar, of course, for his base, you know, wow. nothing. And, um, but ever since then, and still to this day, the building is still called Kaufhaus Tocic. Tocic is my family name. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I, I had some meetings with the people who are now uh, planning for some very interesting projects in the building. They're um, uh, working together with the new owner um, and they are going to call it Kaufhaus Tocic. It's going to be wow. a startup for, um, for tech, small tech companies in uh, Israel and beyond and they're calling it Kaufhaus Tocic. So um, that's pretty amazing. I bet that makes you feel a, a little bit of a sense of pride. The fact that they're wanting to keep very your much. family name with it like that's awesome that is so awesome meant, yes it meant a lot to me in fact they made that commitment to me that we will it will always be Kalfas Tocic and they showed me the what the um um the you know the lettering will look like right on the, on the building and so forth so yes it means a lot to me one of the things that we did while I was in Germany and one of the goals that I had in going was to be present when Stolpersteine were laid for my family. Stolpersteine are brass blocks that are about five by five, four and a half by four and a half inches with the name 
of a Jewish person who was either uh, around, who was either arrested, murdered, or had to flee in the last place where they lived or worked. So uh, we laid Stolpersteine for my mother, my aunt, and my grandparents in front of the store, in front of Kaufhaus Topchek. Wow. And it was a very important ceremony. Um, in fact, it was the first time I've seen hundreds of people inside our building. I still call it our building. Um, there was a lot of media present. Uh, the Lord Mayor was there, Charge d'Affaires from the United States Embassy, number of other dignitaries. And we had a ceremony there. And then um, Gunter Denmig, the artist who started this, this project, the Stolpersteine project, it, it, it's actually, it's the largest memorial in the world. Um, these blocks now number 80 some thousand. And I know this because he told me that my mother's was the 80th thousand that he was installing. Wow. So it was uh, an, uh, an amazing honor to have him present, he himself present, uh, to, uh, to, you know, to lay these Stolpersteine and to be there with him. Uh, it was very touching. That's and incredible. Yeah. It is. It's something that I've wanted to do for such a long time. And I've kind of had an approach avoidance to it. I wanted to do it but it just seemed too, like too much, hmm. too hard, too, it just, it was, um, there was a lot of pain for me yeah. attached to this too. But uh, Lauren Leiterman, the young woman in Berlitz, um, whose husband I mentioned before, and who organized a lot of the, the events that we had there, she, she and Daniel Breutman, who is a German official in Gerlitz, um, combined forces and made it possible for these Stolpersteine to be installed for four families, including mine. Um, wow. I was very glad that I was able to be there. So a lot of, a lot of folks, um, you know, there's, there's different angles on this where some people will say, you know, revisiting these, um, old histories and, and, and family histories and stuff are too difficult and they, and they don't do it um, or they would rather not process those things. Whereas there's other folks like yourself that, you know, engage in these type of things. And um, from my perspective, I, I feel like bringing those people together and, and doing these things is, is, a, is a healing process. And I, I think it's, it's, um, it's very helpful to a lot of people, but um, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Is it, is it, does it work that way for you or, or how, how do you, how do you feel about that? Very much so. It's, it's been very important to me to, to delve into my legacy. Although I have to say that I didn't do so until about 20 years ago. Um, I grew up with the, the meta message that it was better not to ask questions. It was better not to talk about my background. I was also uh, given the, you know, the meta message and it's best not to discuss the fact that I'm Jewish, certainly that I have this background, but I began to really want to learn more. And one of the first things that I did to kind of legitimize my connection to Germany was seek German citizenship. 
And as it turned out, according to the German consulate, I'm the first American to seek citizenship as part of Holocaust reparations. Really? And I wow. did so successfully. So I received my German citizenship in 1997. Wow. And this was very, very meaningful to me. I'm a dual citizen now. And my parents had to help me with this. When I first brought it up, the door kind of closed and I realized I should never bring it up again. And then about a year later, they told me that they wanted to help me because I needed their help. I needed to get a lot of documents, um, you know, a, a, a passport with the J and the swastika, mm. et cetera. These things that, you know, most of us who have this background have or our parents have um, to prove that my parents had been stripped of their citizenship in 1936. So I was entitled to the citizenship based on the fact that in 1936, all German Jews were stripped of their citizenship. They were no longer wow. citizens of any country, and my parents included. So that's um, that was kind of the first step I took to to legitimize my claim on this legacy, on this country, to be able to say that I am a German citizen and I'm proud to be a Jewish German citizen. Um, soon thereafter, I return, I, I, I shouldn't say, this is something that's kind of interesting. A number, I've spoken with a number of people with my background and often without thinking about it, the first, when we speak about the first time going to Germany, for example, our parents are from Germany, I think similarly from Austria, but uh, I'm thinking about Germany. We talk about going back. I've never been to Germany, but I always talk about going back there the first time that's how it kind of seemed to me. I was going back right. to what had been my homeland for generations. My parents' families had been there for many, many generations. And the first time I went back, I went with, back with my parents and they showed, they took us to my brother and me to the cities where they had lived. They showed us the schools where they had studied. Um, we even met a friend of my father's brother who took us around Heidelberg. My father, it was a mixed marriage. My mother uh, is from Gerlitz and Berlin. My father was from Mannheim. So two different parts of Germany. That's kind of wow. an inside joke, but uh, <laughs> not so funny, I guess. But in any mm -hmm. case, um, it was very meaningful to go there for the first time and I then went to a kinder transport gathering in London. My mother escaped Germany on the kinder transport in 1939. Mm. And this was the 60th anniversary of the kinder transports. And it was wow. a very important event held in London. And at this event, I met a woman who was like me, was a second generation kinder transport, kinder transport survivor who had been to a gathering of descendants of the Holocaust from both sides in Massachusetts. And she talked about it. A lot of people were very unhappy to hear this story, but I was very interested and intrigued. And when I came back to the United States, I made some inquiries and found out more about this organization. And the following year, I went uh, to the dialogue group for the first time and I brought my passport. It was, um, I guess I, 
the first time I went to Germany or went back to Germany, I, I came with my passport as well. I, I had already received my passport by that time. I, I find it in, incredibly, almost shocking that you, in 97, that you were the first American that had went for the citizenship and all those years that passed in between and nobody else from America had done that. Um, that's incredible. And then the, the second uh, the second thing that I, I had uh, to ask about that was for those that don't know, wh what is the kinder transport uh, for the listeners? I was yeah, just getting certainly. To ask the same question. <laughs> Sorry, I should, have, I should have said something. No, you're good. Um, now, the kinder transport was a rescue mission that um, was organized by by the UK, by Parliament in 1938. It began on, the, the bill passed actually on December 2nd, 1938, just weeks after, after what we call Kristallnacht. And this is unheard of in Parliament uh, where bureaucracy was rife. You know, it took a long time usually to get anything through Parliament. But within weeks, they had established a program whereby German Jewish, Austrian Jewish and Czech children could be brought to the UK if they were um, between the ages of, I think, seven and 16, I believe. And from there, their children started arriving very quickly. And, uh, and we know now that about 10,000 children came from Germany, Austrian, and uh, Czechoslovakia to the UK uh, my mother was one of those children. My aunt was too old for the kinder transport. She was 17. Um, but that is how um, th this kinder transport narrative also was not very well known in the United States till about 20 years ago. And I really made it my mission to tell this narrative and to get it into the press, get it into the media, get these stories out. And I think I was somewhat successful in doing so. And in Germany, as I mentioned, we had the first kinder transport event in the state where my mother is from, Saxony, and I'm very proud of that. I, um, I had two um, professors I know from the UK come with me, and the three of us had a panel um, that, that we, where we did a, a you know, a, a basically a history and then some personal narratives of the kinder transport. Hold that's, my that's in absolutely incredible and i knew i knew kinder was children because my fam as, as i explained before my mother's family is from prussia and uh was uh, during my grandfather and great uncles were in in the war as well so um i i think a lot of people in america don't know about the the kinder transport so i i think it was really incredible to uh, the work that you've done to bring that to light and and uh, all the survivors and and people that came through that it's just it's it's incredible and i i think this is uh just a such an incredible story to hear and and uh your your courage going back there and and visiting the historical sites i i understand it 100 percent. i i really do um but it it takes a lot of courage and and uh you're an incredible guest and we're truly honored to have you on the, on the yeah. program Absolutely. It is an honor for me as well. It, it truly is. The work that you're doing is exactly the work that I have been wanting to do and have done using my legacy as a bridge to for dialogue. And I, you know, for that reason, I think we've had, we've shared so many wonderful conversations. 
thank you. I was just thinking like, what is, um, because a lot of people, and I think these, these groups, these dialogue groups and bringing people together from different sides of things is incredible for healing. And I think it's, it's, it's really a good thing. Obviously it's what we do as well. Um, it, we do as much of that as we can. Have you had any, um, any, is your experience, I guess, is your experience in it been mostly positive for the people that have gone through it? Or has there been some negative, uh, blowback or some people that have said, you know what, this isn't for me. I didn't like it. I, I think it's a, it's a bad idea. Or has it been overall, um, a very good thing for, for most that, that engage with, with it? I guess it's kind of a three prong question here, but, uh, it's something I'm curious about. Yeah. So there have been people who've walked out of, of these dialogue groups. I can think of three, uh, three men who walked out, two of them from a very, uh, I'm not going to name it, but a very, very well-known uh, German family, German corporation. And uh, their relatives were, again, very uh, well-placed Nazis. And I think it was just too much for them. There is no judgment uh, if there if someone is not ready to do this, they leave and that's fine. There was another man who also left and he, I never knew why. I don't think he ever discussed it. He just got up and walked out. Um, the dialogue groups that we've had have usually lasted about a week. They're very intensive. And I have found them very difficult at times myself. So I really understand how some people perhaps are not ready or maybe never be ready. It may just not be what they, <clears throat> what they need to do. There's also been some negative blowback here and there where um, occasionally somebody has been in a dialogue group who probably shouldn't have been there and created some, uh, some tension. I'll just put, kind of put it that way. Um, that I've heard about these instances as well. So, but for the most part, I think they've been very positive. And that said, it's very, it's self-selective. And we're also, um, those who are facilitators make a lot of effort, put a lot of effort into um, making sure that anyone who participates is, is ready and is psychologically ready for this, because it's, it can be uh, psychologically very stressful. So. Right. I guess kind of along the same lines with that is that, and like you said, you know, it's something that you have to be ready on both sides to be able, because you, it, it takes a certain level of honesty and a certain level of admittance of the facts, not necessarily what we might perceive the facts to be, but what the actual facts are on both sides. And I know for some coming to terms with certain things, like you said before, how like some are like, well, my family wasn't really involved a whole lot, so why should I have to listen to this or vice versa? And so I think that's, I think it is incredible that you are able to get both the survivors and those that, the people on both sides to be able to come together and sit with one another and have dialogue. And it's so important. And I know 
you and Jeff have talked about it before and at Beyond Barriers, we talk about the dialogue and how important it is that even if you're on opposite ends of the spectrum to be able to sit and talk because you can always learn something. And um, kind of along the same lines with the dialogue and being um, the daughter of Holocaust survivors, um, one thing that since starting to work with Beyond Barriers and everything I've come to learn about was generational trauma and something that I had never even thought about before. Like we look at, say, like an abusive family or situation and how a lot of times that can be passed down. Um, it's different, but it's still like generational thing and breaking those cycles. Now, in your experience, have you personally experienced and if you don't want to answer it, it's all right. Have you personally experienced that generational trauma? And if so, do you have any advice for anybody that might be dealing with that as to, as to how to maybe help cope with it? Again, that, I know it's kind of a heavy question, <laughs> so... I think I would answer this in a number of ways. I think, first of all, I have had a difficult time uh, considering myself as being traumatized given what my parents went through. Mm -hmm. And this is also problematic. I think this is true of other uh, children of Holocaust survivors I know of who have felt that their discomfort, pain, trauma doesn't count because of what our parents went through. One story that I, I one of the, I host a second generation dinner group <clears throat> that had been meeting monthly before this pandemic. But one of the women in our group tells a story about being about 10 years old and falling off her bike and having a really bad scrape on her knee. And it was bleeding and she quickly got home and quickly cleaned it up before anyone could see it. She didn't want her parents to see it because she knew without being told she had this I, I, you know, idea that she shouldn't, she shouldn't, she had no claim to her own pain, that mm. her parents had been through so much also that she didn't want to worry them. And I think this right. is something that a lot of us have felt. I, I think I'm among those. I, I do believe that you know, having spoken with so many people who are doing research in this arena and also with second generation survivors and with survivors, I've come to know so many Holocaust survivors as well as survivors of many other horrific uh, um, tragedies such as the Rwandan genocide and 9-11 and I, I, I've met someone who was a slave, so many hor horrific experiences that I know people have survived. And I think that there, there, there are a couple things. I think one is that I'm a big believer in talking therapy. I think it's mm -hmm. extremely important to talk, whether with a therapist, whether with other people who share um, this narrative, um, whether it is with friends, I think speaking about one's experience helps legitimize it. 
I think one of the things that I, I have had a difficulty with in my own life is legitimizing my own pain or discomfort or trauma. That's been difficult for me. I can say that um, participating in these dialogue groups went such a long way to changing that for me and to assuaging I, what I believe was passed down to me because of my parents' trauma that they went through. And it's continued to be that way. I think also for me doing this work of perpetuating, doing whatever I can do to perpetuate dialogue, to I say, it's not perpetuate, but to facilitate dialogue mm -hmm. is something that has really helped me a lot. Um, and I think I would recommend that to others as well. Using your legacy, using your experience as a way to make the world a better place now, I think is important. I heard um, a number of podcasts, I've listened to quite a few of your podcasts and I heard Josh, oh, Stepakov. Stepakov, okay, I did have it right. Talking about tikkun haolam, which means repairing or healing the earth. And I think it is a beautiful idea in, in Judaism that we can maybe pass along to the rest of the world. We, we each have an opportunity to do our part to tikkun haolam, heal the earth. And um, I think that is one way we can use some of that, that uh, trauma or pain or anxiety that does get passed down or can get passed down. You know, I, I just, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, 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 I just, really good question in case you're confused. And, and that was the next question I had, which you just answered was, I, you, I was going to say when you were talking about how, what you're doing, I was going to say, this sounds like Tikkun Olam. And, and I was going to ask you for the, cause it's one of the few J Jewish terms that I, that I, uh, words or, or uh, phrases that I know because I, I really like it. And, and it's, it, it, it's on mission. It's on point. You know, it's, it's something that I think a lot of people outside of the Jewish community don't know about that. Um, meeting the Jewish community myself, a lot of the stereotypes that I had when I was in the movement, you know, from back then, everything was the opposite, you know, um, what, what was believed or what was thought. So I thought it was, you know, that was one of the questions I had for you is, is share with the listening audience what that means. And you, and you just explained it. So you, you were two steps ahead of me there, Tamara. <laughs> it's, well, re it's really good, though. I love it too. I, I, I was listening to Josh and, and Muhammad on the same day and I thought what perfect bookends. Muhammad Ahmed, um, uh, um, his program. I, I believe I've met him actually. I have to check, but I believe I've met him. I, I, I was texting you about that. Uh, we've both done some, do some work with Parents for Peace. I'm on their advisory board. And, and Josh, I mean, both of them and all of us, really, all five of us here, the, uh, the three of us and them and so many other people, you know, using our backgrounds to, to make this world a better place, to do our part. Um, I believe that that's probably the most important thing that we can do if, for those who do feel that they have survivor guilt, or I'm sorry, not survivor guilt, uh, survivor trauma or trauma, you know, see about using using your narrative to to teach and also to to facilitate dialogue 
And that's, that's certainly one of my goals. That's, that's really on point. And I, I agree a hundred percent. I feel like it would be a lot easier to, to, to take some of those uh, terrible experiences from our pasts and just bury it away or never revisit that or never think about it again. But if, if those type of uh, scenarios, experiences, lived experiences, um, family experiences can be passed on and shared with other people, storying and, and that, that uh, relational dialogue working together is such a healing process for people. And I think it's so incredibly moving, especially when you can, when you're sitting across from somebody or you're meeting somebody that has went through that, your humanity does isn't going to allow you to look past that. You know, if you read about it in a book or you watch it on TV, you could go, ah, well, that did not, that doesn't affect me. That's not here or now, or that was a long time ago. That has nothing to do with uh, myself or, or, you know, from, from that perspective. But when you're there and you're across from that person, this is why I think it's, it's so incredibly powerful and, and healing is you can't, you can't look away. That, that's something you can't, you can't go, oh, well, nope, that's not here. It's right in front of you and, and you have to deal with it. And, and uh, it reminded me of, of something else that, that uh, you know, when you heard of the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions that they did in Cambodia and also uh, to, a, uh, to a degree in South Africa, um, what you're doing and, and, and some of what we do, it sounds like that. I always thought that was a, a really good thing so in, in those areas it wasn't necessarily to um, punish people per se, but to facilitate that healing and, and, bring, and bring people together. And, and uh, I just, I, I guess it's not really a question, but it's sort of a question. What, is that, is that, uh, would that be accurate? Is that kind of what, uh, would it be similar to those truth and reconciliation commissions? So much so. Again, as to use your words right on point, a lot of people have asked me, um, how can you forgive these people, these people? Or, um, you know, why are you trying to work for reconciliation? And my answer usually is that I'm not. I'm not working towards reconciliation. I'm not all about forgiveness. I don't really know what that means in some regard. I'm not a believer in that word in forgiveness. And I've actually had a, a number of former white supremacists apologize to me. And, you know, my response has been, and, and actually uh, uh, a, a former SS officer who I knew in Germany, the, the same, you know, um, tell me he was sorry. And I think that, you know, my answer, I don't know if I answered everyone the same way, is that I, I, I appreciate that, but you know, whatever you or your family did, you didn't do to me personally. But more importantly, I'm not really a believer in forgiveness. I'm a, a believer in finding humanity in other people. Mm -hmm. And I believe that once, as you, to your point, you tell your story, whatever that story is, and it reaches someone else, the humanity is found. The humanity in that other person is found. And there, it is so different from just reading about it in the, in the newspaper. Um, you know, I had read so much about the Rwandan genocide, but when I met Eugenie, who spent nine months living under a bed while her family was murdered around her, she's the only one who survived, that 
had such an impact on me. And I, I'll, I'll never forget that. I, I, and, you know, I was thinking about this a little bit today. I've had a number of people say, oh, I know exactly what you mean. I think one thing that really is helpful is to realize that no one knows what anyone else has gone through. Even if it seems as though we've had exactly the same experience, we haven't. Um, and yet, all of us are human, and we can find humanity in one another's narratives, in one another's person. We may not feel forgiveness. Somebody, people do need to be held accountable for what they did or didn't do, if that's, you know, if that's what's called for. But there is humanity in each human, in each person. And I think that finding that, that thread, that bridge in Hebrew, it's, it's gesher, communication, the bridge between two people, that is also what helps tikkun ha'olam. That is what also helps heal the earth, finding that humanity. And that is definitely something that I've experienced in these dialogue groups. I've, um, I, I definitely felt, as I've been kind of sorting through the feelings and experiences that I had when I was just recently in Germany, I would say that I would, uh, that was probably one of the best things that happened there, that kind of dialogue and connection with people who were there who've never met a Jewish person before. By the way, some of my American friends have just think that's astounding. Um, I, I was speaking with someone who's African-American and he said, well, how many African-Americans are there in Gurlitz? And I said, well, I saw a number of African-American families and and um, he said, well, how many people have met African-Americans? I said, well, I don't know, but I can almost guarantee you that nearly almost no one in that city has ever met a Jewish person. Wow. So that's something that we kind of take for granted in, you know, in this country that we're, especially where I live in Washington, D.C., we're a melting pot with so many different cultures and people who come together. But that's not true everywhere. And this is another benefit of people telling their stories, telling their narratives. Everyone has a story. Mm -hmm. yeah, I love I, that you just said that because everybody does. That's one of my big things is that everybody has a story. And one thing that I always say is like, well, what's your story? Like, because a lot of people think, well, I haven't been through trauma like so-and-so. I haven't been through this. I just had, you know, a pretty normal life. But that's one thing I tell them is like, you still have a story, even if, there isn't say the trauma that somebody else went through you still have a story so i'm very happy that you said that because it's true like everybody's got some story to tell and and that's what i guess makes dialogue even more important and um i love 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 the fact that you said it's not so much about necessarily believing in the the forgiveness and forgiving somebody else as it is finding the humanity. Like I have never, I grew up uh, in a Christian home and one thing that's preached a lot is forgiveness. And I'm very thankful for that. And a lot of times people think that forgiveness is to make somebody else feel better or to make yourself feel better. But I've never heard it from the viewpoint that you just said it. Like, the forgiveness for you personally isn't the important thing. 
it's being able to find that humanity again and reconnect with that humanity and that you're going to make me cry. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just, it's, it's beautiful. It's very Thank beautiful. Thank you. I'll say something about that. I was a participant. I was on a panel uh, for a couple of weeks with a group um, called Tikkun Long Island. And it was a restorative justice program that um, uh, uh, an attorney and psychologist had started. And he was kind of breaking ground at Turo Law School by bringing this panel of myself and a few other people around, you know, throughout Long Island to give talks and so forth. And before we embarked on this, he wanted to put together a little booklet to um, send out and to give to people at these different events that we were going to be holding. And he asked me if I'd be willing to write a piece kind of as a model. I, I do a lot of writing um, for, for everyone else. I said, well, what do you want it to be about? He said, well, forgiveness. I said, well, I don't really believe in forgiveness. And he said, um, really? I said, really? I said, maybe I'm not the right person for your panel. <laughs> <laughs> and he said well tell me what you mean so I told him I said I I really don't believe in forgiveness because I think it's just a word that's flung around quite a bit I really believe and I told him I really believe in in dialogue and in in connection and in finding humanity in another person and getting to know someone and actually, the first time a, a, a former white supremacist apologized to me, and I, and I was the first Jewish person he'd ever really sat down with and broke bread with. We actually did break bread. We found a croissant and broke broke it. <laughs> but um, he 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 told me that he was sorry and he asked for my forgiveness. And. I had to be honest and I told him, you know, I, I really want to get to know you. I'm really willing to get to know you and continue this conversation we've had. I, I, I can't forgive you because for the reasons I just brought up, you didn't do these things to me. I, um, I'm not a big believer in that, but I, I'd like to continue our conversation. So I told Robert, the, the attorney, what I, felt about and believed about forgiveness. He said, well, write about that. So I did. Wow. And I wrote about the, the you know, the, the, the road to understanding is a very long, it can be a very long and arduous road. It's not as simple saying, I forgive you or please forgive me, but it's really, um, it's, it's a long path that we have to take, I think sometimes. In Judaism, something else I really appreciate about uh, this religion, my religion, is that in Judaism, you can't ask God for forgiveness. You have to go to the person and ask forgiveness or make amends. And I think that for me, that is all about, again, continuing the conversation. Yeah. So that's a really and <clears throat> thanks for sharing all that because that's a really incredible way of, of of looking at things and it's 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 not it's not so simple as just uh 
shooting it down, you know, as you, as you've explained, you're, you're thinking big picture here and, and there's a whole lot going on. It's not as simple as just saying, yeah, yeah, I forgive you. It's, it's, it's much deeper than that. And, and the way you explained it was really uh, beautiful. And, and uh, I, I totally understand that. And um, I, I understand, you know, you've taught conflict resolution uh, courses, all kinds of different things. Uh, so you're, you're no rookie in this, in this, uh, dialogue thing so maybe you want to uh, talk a little bit about that or some of the projects that you've done that are really meaningful besides the one that we've already discussed yeah so i and i'm still a rookie i think i'll always be a rookie (laughs) in other words i think there's still always so much to learn and you know one of the things that i talk about when i when i've taught uh conflict resolution is that it's a lot easier sometimes to forgive or to find resolution or or dialogue um, with someone who uh, is not so close to you than it is with your own family. And I think it's, um, and yet I think the principles are really the same. You know, it comes down to really talking and sometimes finding that the, the conflict is something so much it's just truly a misunderstanding. I uh, was teaching a conflict resolution program for a company a long time ago, and um, there was a manager and an employee that were having just an impossible time working together. And we began to talk, the three of us, and we had a large group actually, so everyone was listening. And it turned out that they just had very different conversational styles. The employee was from New York. She spoke very fast, very fast paced. And she was New Yorker. She was used to having to do things quickly, get her uh, get her impressions in quickly, um, make a quick impression. And her, her, uh, her manager was a woman from Ohio. And she would think before she spoke and she was a little slower in the way she, slower paced. And she wasn't as animated. And it turned out that The real problem we realized was their different conversational styles. That's a simple, you know, a a simple um, explanation for what can sometimes be a lot more complicated than that. But sometimes just parsing out and finding, um, uh, you know, what is what is at the root of a conflict can be really useful. Sometimes it's some it is something simple. And on the other hand, what we find, for example, in the dialogue group that I was talking about, the first dialogue group that I attended, I discovered that the people I had most in common with were not the other Holocaust survivors. Actually, there was a Holocaust survivor who, by the strangest coincidence, was one of my mother's closest friends from Berlin. Oh, wow. And she had been living in Italy, in Rome for 60 years, and she ended up as one of the 10 participants in this dialogue group. Um, But what I was gonna say, sorry, I lost my train of thought for a moment here. Um, It was, it's, um, it's an amazing thing when you bring people together and find out that the people you would least likely expect to have something in common with you do. That is a remarkable experience. And that is what I felt the first time I went to a dialogue group in Berlin, that the people I was 
in a sense, most immediately comfortable with were the children of Nazis. Because I knew that rhythm, I knew that language. I, I, I am a German citizen. I was a German citizen by that point. And I, we kind of rocked to the same rhythm is the, 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 the word that comes to mind. And actually, the, the first night I was in Berlin, I took a walk with one of the women in the group. She was a translator from, um, I believe she is from Berlin. And we're both walkers, we're, we both love to exercise and you just kind of needed to let off steam. And while a lot of people were, you know, having a drink and smoking, we first needed to get out and take a walk. So we were walking around Lake Vance, very close to House Vance, where the final solution was drafted, by the way. And um, she asked me where I lived and I told her Washington, D.C. And she said, ah, oh, you live in Washington, D.C. I want to come there. I want to go to the Holocaust Museum. Maybe I can come and, you know, come and visit you and we can go to the Holocaust Museum together. And I thought, I'm not going to tell her because I had made a, a commitment never to go there. I never wanted to go to the Holocaust Museum, this national Holocaust Museum and Memorial here in D.C., Washington, D.C., 10 years later, she came to visit me. And just before she arrived, she said, oh, Tamara, I really want to go to the Holocaust Museum with you. And I thought, oh no, I'm gonna have to go. So actually, <laughs> the first time I went to the Holocaust Museum was with the daughter of a Nazi. Wow. Wow. Yes. And, and then a month later, Martina Emma, who came with me to Gurlitz this time, the founder of One by One, one of the founders, um, was coming to Washington just for a day or two and staying with me. And it was a beautiful spring day. And I told her all the different things I thought we might do that day. And she said, you know, Tamara, what I'd really like to do, do is go to the Holocaust Museum this year. So the second time I went to the Holocaust Museum was with the granddaughter of a Nazi and... Um, um, again, you know, you asked about, or you were talking about commonality. I think that, I think that one thing that is very surprising that almost anyone will discover once they meet other people who they are in conflict with and talk and tell their narratives and share and wit bear witness to one another's stories is that they have a lot in common. Astoundingly so. Wow. And I, I think that is, I mean, it, it's so true and it's so shocking, I think, to people on both sides. And just some of the people that we've met since leaving the movement and you find those commonalities and you find, I have more in common with this person who, I, who was a perceived adversary or perceived enemy than... I had in common with a lot of the people or most of the people that I had had been around. And I'm, I'm not just speaking for myself, but we hear this all the time from people. And um, I just think it's so incredible when, when you bring people together that even that for the outside world that's, that's looking in and it's hearing these stories, I can just imagine the mouths dropping, you know, hearing you explain that and how, I mean, it's heavy stuff. But to explain that and to, and to to hear that, I think for a lot of people, 
it might take a couple minutes or, or longer to process that. Like, how does that even work? And that's why I think it's so important to have these conversations and why it's so incredible the work that you're doing and share and sharing these stories. I know it's not easy, um, but it, it, it makes such a difference. And, and uh, it's just really incredible. Thank you. So welcome. I it means a lot to me to be speaking with the with the two of you. I it really does. I love the work that you are doing. I feel as though we're kind of comrades here, and um, and the more that we can work together, the better. You know, Absolutely. here here um, one and one and one makes ten. <laughs> you know? Exactly. So, um, so I was talking about being in Gurlitz and participating in all these events that I'd help plan. Many of, of them I'd help plan from this country. Um, a lot of it had been planned by Lauren Leiterman, this wonderful young woman in, in Gurlitz in the city who made it her mission to do so. But there was also an event that occurred that I wasn't expecting and that I had a chance to participate in. And this is something that I discovered the townspeople, the city of Gurlitz has been doing since back in the DDR, we call it the GDR times when Gurlitz was part of the Eastern Bloc. And what happened was that on November 9th, which is, we call it Kristallnacht here in this country, in Europe, they call it the pogroms of November 8th and 9th, they translated into different languages. On November 9th, People in the city gather at a gorgeous, beautiful Catholic church. And there is a ceremony held. Uh, it, this gathering lasted for about an hour and a half. And uh, three different priests spoke. Um, one of them probably from different churches. There was a, a, a female minister and two men. And actually the Lord Mayor also spoke at the church. And then one by one, we left the church. And as we left, we were given a candle in a paper cup. It was a very cold, brisk night in November. And we walked out of the church. There were hundreds of us, actually. And we all made our way slowly to the synagogue. It was about, I'd say, a half a mile walk. So for that half mile, we, the descendants, dignitaries, the police, there was always a police presence. Whenever there's a Jewish event in Germany, there are always police. Uh, dignitaries, townspeople, people from other cities. We walked together with our lit candles till we arrived at the synagogue, this beautiful synagogue, uh, the only to survive Kristallnacht or the pogroms on the 9th of November uh, 1938 in Saxony and one of the few in Germany to survive. We arrived at the synagogue together, a few hundred people, all with our lit candles. And one by one, people brought their candles and put them in a box with sand. And those of us who were uh, descendants came up to kind of the top step along with dignitaries. And we just held a moment of silence together. And there was a jazz musician playing after that, this beautiful jazz saxophone player. And there was just this wonderful feeling of coming together with the townspeople, the city descendants, 
dignitaries, everyone coming together in such a beautiful way. And this was particularly meaningful to me, given the fact that I've been very anxious about coming to Germany and, and particularly this city where a huge percentage of the population had voted for the far right-wing um, political party in the last parliamentary uh, vote. So to have this coming together was just, uh, it was a wonderful way to spend the last day that I spent this last time in, in Gurlitz and on this trip. Thank, thank you for asking me about it. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, that's incredible. Akasha, do you have any uh, any uh, any other questions, or um, I'm going to ask the last one that I have. You go for it. It's been I great. was just I was just going to ask if you have anything else that we've we've not covered, or anything you'd like to say to the audience in closing, or or a message of wisdom in anything. If if there's something that we've not discussed, then now is is definitely the time. I think the one thing I would say is that there are a lot of us who are doing this work and a lot of organizations who are working to make a difference. Yours is one. I also want to mention Parents for Peace. I'm on the advisory board for that organization. And I just have so much respect for the work that you're doing that, that our organization Parents for Peace is doing to fight extremism and help people who might be radicalized leave, um, leave that, leave hatred behind. Yeah. It, it's, um, it takes a lot of effort, I think, to, to confront one's past, whatever that is. Mm. And I think that the one thing I would say is that it continues to be worth it for me to confront or maybe explore my past, my legacy, and do what I can to use those narratives, my legacy, those stories, to, to connect with other people and to do my little part to, as we've all mentioned, tikkun haolam. That's what I would say. That's, well, a, that's a beautiful uh, uh, way to close. And, and we are going to, for the viewers, uh, Parents for Peace does excellent work as well, and we are going to link them in the in the description. We will link them so people can check them out, and they do great work as well. And thank you so much for joining us. I feel like we could have went on. And, uh, we might have to have you back on in the future again if if you're willing. <laughs> so thank you so much, and and it was uh, an incredible honor. So welcome. I'm so honored. I'm I'm so honored to meet you both this way. Thank you. Thank you.